Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. We'll be reading Mark chapter 12, verses 38 to 44. Let's see what the scripture says today. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Reunion. Good morning. My name is Emily, and I'm so happy to welcome you all to church today. Um, Whether you're in person or joining us online, shout out to my mentorship group that said they'll be tuning in today, so I had to give them a plug. They asked me to. We're so glad that you're here. Um, And I want to pray for us today, but before I do, I want to welcome us into a moment of silence. Um, Usually we're used to taking moments of silence to mourn something um, or to celebrate, but today uh, I want to do something different. The word says that God didn't come in the wind, he didn't come in the earthquake or the fire, he came in a gentle whisper, or another translation says, a still small voice. And while God has prepared a corporate word for us today, I do believe that in the challenges that he's issuing us today, there is something more personal to be said. So whatever you're carrying with you today, um, maybe this moment of silence is for you to just trust God, to refocus your thoughts and bring you here. Um, Or maybe you're wanting something, and this is a moment for you to talk to God about that and see how he meets you in this word today. So... I'm going to pray for us, but first uh, I'm going to ask you guys, however you want to be in silence, whether it's bowing your heads, um, closing your eyes, whatever that looks like, I'm going to give us around a minute to do that.
loving God, we thank you for your presence. Holy Spirit, help us be aware of what you have to say to us today. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, God, and help us as a church walk towards you. Lord, we are getting ready to hear about the path to the cross, to how you died for us, Lord, but let us not ignore the week that you took to be with others, to teach, to sit. God, and in that same way, you are with us. You pause to be with us, Lord. God, I pray that um, anything that may be distracting us as we are here today may just gently leave the room right now. God, I pray for your word to come upon us, come upon our hearts, Lord, our minds, our souls, and come against anything, any lie that we're experiencing today, any doubt, any hopelessness, Lord. I know that your word never comes back empty, God, and I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. So we have been moving through the book of Mark at a snail's pace. Believe it or not, Russell started this series in 2021. Two years. God bless him for, the, for following God in this mission. Um, but if you're anything like me, you like to move through life very quickly. Um, if I know where I'm going, I want to get there as fast as possible. I will check Google Maps. I'll check regular maps, even though it sucks. And I'll check Waze to make sure I get there. If I could put it in an email and you make me sit through a 30-minute Zoom call, I'm going to be very upset and complain to you. This morning, I was looking at my turkey bacon, and I was like, come on, microwave. Like, we got to go. I have to go to church today. I like living life fast-paced. And while it has its benefits, I always manage to make it to the train cart right before it closes. It also has its disadvantages. One day, my therapist asked me, Emily, is there a sprint that I'm unaware of in your life? You're missing out on the scenery. And I hate it when my therapist drops truths that I did not ask her for. Um, but she made such a great point because when we move too fast towards the story of the cross, we miss out on the scenery that is Jesus' journey to the cross. In the passages that we read, we find ourselves in the last week of Jesus' life. If you knew that you had only one week to live, what would you be thinking about? Who would you spend your time with? How intentional would you be with the final words you share with others? This is where Jesus finds himself, the last week of his life. And if we were to rush towards the details of his death, we miss out on these final intentional moments he had with some pretty unlikely characters that don't often get the attention they deserve. And don't misunderstand me, Jesus dying on the cross is the greatest, most transformational moment this world will ever encounter. But as we approach Lent and Easter, I find myself thinking of those who have only heard one part of the story. Those of us who struggle finding ourselves in the story of the cross. They say he died for me, but does Jesus even know me? Does he care about my suffering? In the last week of his life, Jesus stopped to not only see this widow, but make her known to others. And so I invite you to consider that the intentional Jesus who took his time to sit and know this widow is taking his time to see and make you know. 
But before we get to the story, I want to highlight one important theme that brings together these three passages. There are certain moments of life when we're humbled by the simple truth that we are being too much. I don't know how many of you are familiar with this image, but eventually, yes. This is Kim Kardashian, who just managed to lose earrings that were worth $75,000 in the ocean. Mind you, she only lost one, so I guess whatever half of that is. Um, and so this is a very dramatic scene. Uh, she's in some glamorous vacation. We find her here on the top, and all of a sudden she feels around and she's like, oh, my earring, my earring is gone, it's missing. And they're diamond earrings, mind you. Um, and so she's crying and she's just distraught. Her then husband, boyfriend, I'm not sure, jumps into the ocean because for some reason he thinks that he's gonna find an earring in that. Um, and then obviously they couldn't find it. She gets outside. Um, and then she's sobbing, much like you see her here. Her mom embraces her. She's saying, it's okay. Save the other one. And then you have Courtney. And Courtney's not having it right now. <laughs> she goes outside, and she wants to see what the fuss is all about. And she's just like, what's wrong? And Kim, in Kim fashion, begins to cry and say, I lost my diamond earring. And Courtney responds, Kim, we're the people that are dying. I really wish I could say it like her because it was much more sassy, but I'm not going to attempt to. Kim was being too much, and Courtney had to humble her. And while this is a very funny, memeable moment in Kim's life, it also reveals the ways that our hearts and minds can be focused on the wrong things. We might not be crying over $75,000 earrings, and if you've got it like that, praise the Lord. I don't, but... How many times have we prioritized success over spending time with our loved ones? How many times have we fixated on achieving perfection, professionally or otherwise, and ignored the brokenness of others, the brokenness of ourselves? Jesus brings to light a culture of being too much that still threatens to seep into our hearts today. Verses 38 through 40 read, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to talk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. We see here that the scribes were basically the Kim Kardashians of Jesus' day. The Greek word here for long robe is Solice, which refers to robes specifically worn by the upper class. They might not be 75k earrings we see Kim wear, but the robes send a message. The scribes wanted others pe other people to know that they were in a particular class. They were different. They liked attention. We see that here. The Greek word here for like is actually much stronger, meaning they desired, they wished for, they longed for these greetings in the marketplaces. These were people who wanted to be seen and they wanted to be seen as important and honored. And what makes me quite sad is that something happened to their hearts. Their greed and their longing for attention drove them away from God. They didn't even know how to pray. The Greek word here for pretense is prophecy, which does not mean prophecy, contrary to what I thought. It means an outward showing. Everything about them was exterior. And prayer is so important to me. I don't know about you, but 
I have had so many times I felt depressed, I felt hopeless, and then just spending time with Jesus has lifted my spirits. Things might not have changed on the outside, but on the inside, I was healed, I was energized, I was filled with hope. So when I read this, I grieve for the scribes because how tiring and empty must it be to only be concerned about your appearances, to only care about what others think about you. And then it makes me think, what's going on inside of them that drove them to hyperfixate on what's going on outside? As a therapist, I read this passage and immediately thought, narcissistic personality disorder. Now, we need more information to actually diagnose the scribes that we don't have, but if we look at the description of narcissism, it's not that far off. Narcissistic personality disorder is a mental health condition in which people have an unreasonably high sense of their own importance. They need and seek too much attention and want people to admire them. People with this disorder may lack the ability to understand or care about the feelings of others. But behind this mask of extreme confidence, they are not sure of their self-worth and are easily upset by the slightest criticism. Now, please don't leave here today trying to diagnose the people that you know with narcissism. That is not the point here. We are not trying to diagnose our exes or our enemies at work. But we do see that the scribes fit a lot of this criteria. High sense of their own importance. They are the ones who need the important seats, who need honor. They need and seek too much attention. They long for greetings in the marketplaces, greetings in the public. They want people to admire them. They lack the ability to understand or care about the feelings of others. We haven't even gotten to what they did to the widows. Devouring their houses is not a sign of caring about the feelings of your neighbor. The Greek word for devour here is powerful. To eat up, eat till it's finished, devour, squander, injure. They were doing damage to the lives of these widows. And I'm not going to make excuses for them, so... Don't mishear what I'm about to say, but Jesus shows that when you're so desperately focused on portraying a certain image, you will go to any lengths to maintain it, even if it means stealing from the marginalized. This description could help us hypothesize that it might have been their low sense of worth that drove them to become corrupt. They were so desperate for this image. They were so desperate for people to see them a certain way that they needed to maintain it. What we do know here is that the prioritization of the material, of what it felt like to be in the spotlight, because don't, don't get me wrong, attention is nice, but it pulled the scribes away from prioritizing prayer, justice, and love for their neighbor. We see them ignore the emptiness of their unfed interior as they continue to feed the exterior. We might not be flaunting long robes or 75K earrings, but we can all relate to ignoring what is going on inside and prioritizing what's going on outside. What is pulling your focus into the exterior and away from what God is trying to do in your own heart? This shift can happen in subtle ways in the most mundane areas of our lives. And the best example I can think of is online dating. I won't make you raise your hands, but isn't this a spot where we want to, have to, prioritize the exterior? Looking at the outside is quite literally part of the package. We craft the profile pictures with the fish that we pretended to catch or the dog that definitely isn't ours. 
we write the catchy bios. One of my close friends had a line that said, um, saving the world one mango at a time. She doesn't know what it means. It just was catchy. Um, so the exterior. And then we chat, right? We chat like we're writing a witty script to our upcoming rom-com movie. And while we get pulled into the exterior, how focused are we on becoming the type of person who is ready to be in a relationship? How focused are we on pushing past the facade and trying to find the true heart behind the other person? How much do we let the image of what a relationship could be blind us from all the red flags that are happening inside of that person? Online dating isn't a bad thing. But if we let ourselves continue to feed the exterior, we run the risk of missing out on what God is trying to do on the inside. Jesus warns that the actions of the scribes will lead to greater condemnation. And this warning is actually an invitation to us today to examine what is taking up space in our hearts. So some questions to ask ourselves. Am I being too much in a certain area of my life? Am I allowing the exterior things pull focus away from what God is doing on the inside? In his book that we read as a community group last season, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro writes this. God made us whole people in his image. That image includes physical, spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and social dimensions. Ignoring any aspect of who we are as men and women made in God's image always results in destructive consequences in our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. Pete emphasizes the importance of respecting our full humanity and tells us that there are inevitable consequences of failing to do so. In his book, he provides a really um, handy tool, which is a pie chart that we could use to help us examine our own hearts. So here's what I imagine the pie chart looking like for the scribes. So don't quote me on this. Intellectual, 20%. Their job is to literally read and study the law. And then we have social, 35%, because they're out here in the marketplaces. They want to be in the best seats in the house. So this is an important part of their life. Emotional, we're at a 10. Um, I maybe should have put a little bit lower because of what they did to the widows. Spiritual, out of five, they can't pray. It's all for show. And then the physical is 30%. All they care about is what they can see, how they can dress, what's going to get them feeling elevated, what's going to get them that rush. And my question today is, what would your pie chart look like? What do your percentages portray? Intellectual, social, emotional, spiritual, physical. The scribes show us that when our pie charts are unbalanced, there are consequences to ourselves and to the community, to the people that are around us. Our imbalanced pie charts are not just an obstacle for our own lives, but they can be a stumbling block for others. So at this time, the scribes were legal experts. Their responsibilities included teaching, interpretation, and regulation of the law. So imagine what the law must have been presented as by the same scribes who were stealing from the widows and preoccupied with appearances. And another important thing to note here is that the scribes were considered part of the official interpreters of the Old Testament, meaning they had a hand in interpreting the prophecies and scriptures related to who the Messiah was. 
So when the people are waiting for a Messiah, who they're being presented to as is by these people that we just described. So verses 35 to 37 challenges this. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. We won't spend too much time on this passage. There's a lot today, I know. Um, but Jesus does two important things here. He confronts the expectations of the teachers of the law, and then he redefines what the Messiah looks like. Why is this important? In verse 35, we see Jesus calling out the teachers of the law, much like the scribes that we just saw, and their interpretation of what the Messiah looks like. In their eyes, the Messiah is King David Jr., a strong political figure. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to him. Their expectation was likely someone with status, someone with leadership. Considering what we know about the scribes, I think we can assume that they expected someone like them. Long robes, long prayers, upper class, etc., etc. And then in verse 37, Jesus just drops the mic on all of them. He uses the very scripture that the scribes are in charge of interpreting to defy their expectations. David himself calls him Lord. How then? Can he be his son? What Jesus is really communicating here is that the Messiah is senior to David, not junior, as a descendant would be. He's more than just David's son. He is David's Lord. But what caught my attention here was not the fact that Jesus spit this truth. He did that all the time. It was the reaction of the crowd. The large crowd listened to him with delight. Why delight? Jesus was always talking to crowds. Um, oftentimes they were tired, oftentimes um, they were in awe. But what about this, which can be seemingly confusing, produces delight? Well, I think that they probably expected the Messiah to look more like this guy, which you already saw. Yeah. Any Hamilton fans in the room? No? Yes, we can geek out later. Um, now, obviously, this is a funny picture and not exactly what they pictured in mind, but if we really consider who is defining the Messiah, I don't think this is far off. Someone with authority, someone dressed elegantly, and then someone whose presence commands attention. Do we think that they were expecting a baby boy born in a manger where animals live, or a king clothed in splendor? Did they expect the Messiah to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Jesus created access to a world in a world of too much expectations on a Messiah who was disconnected from the people. Instead of a Messiah that sat on a throne, that ruled people around, that spit way too much, if you saw the Disney um, take on Hamilton, Jesus walked with lepers. He healed the marginalized. And so when I hear the large crowd listen to him with delight, I picture hearing a deep sigh of relief. Someone who's finally going to speak to the core of our hearts. Someone who doesn't care only about the long robes that they wear. Jesus was breaking down expectations that the Messiah was this political, distant, unaccessible figure. He was and he is a personal Messiah. And nothing describes this better than the story of the widow we see in the last four verses of this chapter. 
and he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. We're going to go back to the Kim Kardashian picture, which is, I think I put it in again. Yeah. I never thought I'd say this, but Jesus and Kourtney Kardashian are aligned in the ways that they shift the focus back to what is important. I know, Jesus, Courtney, we don't really often see a similarity there. But Courtney looks at Kim, and she offers no condolences to the $75,000 earrings and says, Kim, there's people that are dying. In other words, Kim, you are worth $1.7 billion. You are crying over earrings that didn't even put a dent in your wallet. And let's be real, what was the process to get the diamonds for those earrings? There are more important things to be focusing on, Kim. Jesus steps into a world where the focus was on the long robes of the scribes, the powerful people with money, and he calls our attention to what is actually important, the heart of this widow. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrates that he is a Messiah that stops to pay attention to injustice. In the beginning of the scene, we see him stop to sit down and watch watch the people. I was born and raised in New York. I don't stop for anything. So the New Yorker in me was asking Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you stopping? You have a week left to live, sir. It's time to move. It's time to preach. It's time to heal. It is not time to people watch. And how many of us speed walk through New York City, passing homeless folks whose faces we can't even recall? I know I've raced down the streets to catch my train, ignoring and to be quite honest, avoiding people who are injecting themselves because I have more important places to be. Jesus sat down in the last week of his life and he observed. And what he saw was a widow who gave all that she had to a temple who had likely abused her or people like her. Can you imagine that, giving all that you have to a system that you have personally experienced corruption by. Jesus stops to see the injustice of her world, a world where her grief was exploited and her voice was silenced, and Jesus responds by giving the widow a voice, giving her a platform, giving her the spotlight that the scribes so badly wanted, exalting her actions and then ultimately disrupting the entire system with his life and then eventually with his death. Jesus joins the widow. He sides with her. He lives like her. She gave all she had to live on, and he gave his whole entire life. And what excites me about this is that God, the God who stops and sits to pay attention to the injustice is still doing that today. God pauses and he sees the pain that injustice has brought to this world. And while this is a comfort, it's also a challenge. If we are to live like Jesus, we are called to pause and pay attention to injustice. So I leave you with these questions. What is God calling you 
to see in this season? What is he calling you to see at school? What is he calling you to see in your community, in your place of work? And how are you meant to address injustice in your community or elsewhere? I believe the Holy Spirit will help us each answer these questions in a personal way. These questions aren't meant to be easy. We could all easily pick an organization to volunteer with and put in some hours to combat some form of injustice. And don't hear me wrong, that those are all good things. But God is actually calling us to make something known that only we can, be, we can make known. Just as he has made us known, just as he has seen us, we are called to see others. And so if you're struggling with hearing direction from God um, or even with these ideas or with God himself, uh, there are going to be three of us that are going to be praying to the side. I think it's Allison, myself, and Christine. Um, and we just want to pray with you so that we can move towards answering these questions. Jesus may have sat alone as he watched people, but I love that he calls his disciples over once he notices the widow. He didn't do this journey alone, and we don't have to either. So to end, I want to ask ourselves again, what would we do if we knew we only had a week to live? Jesus made sure that his gospel was accessible. He took his time to pay attention to and condemn injustice, and he gave a voice to the voiceless. I'm going to ask Brandon to come um, and pray us out, but I want to leave us with this prayer from Proverbs. Lord, Help me speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so we'll have Brandon come up and pray us out. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart, Lord, that we may see you, that we may see ourselves, that we may see those around us, that we will see the, the need in the world, that we will see the injustices that will be, and that we will see the hope, the hope that comes from you intervening, you stepping in, you standing up, I pray that we see confidence arise within us to speak up and speak out, Lord. I pray that we see lives changed and transformed. I pray that we see opportunities to respond to what you're saying and what you're doing. Lord, prick our hearts. Allow us to think about our time with great diligence. Allow us to surrender to you, Lord. And think about how we can give of ourselves selflessly, Lord God. Align our hearts to your will, Lord. Father, what is it that you are saying in this moment and in this season? How are you calling us to respond to the word that was shared? How are you asking us to live Search our hearts, Holy Spirit. And if there is any way that is haughty or for show or for selfish gain, Lord, I pray that you extract that 
and put it to the wayside, Lord. And by your Holy Spirit, sanctify us and purify us. And I pray that we are able to walk with greater love, greater mercy, greater integrity, and with greater hope for your return and joy. Transform us by the truth of your gospel and the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.